Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I do not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And then God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is the, this is the kindness you must do to me. Sorry, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you have indicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Uh, thanks, Ed. Um, Adriel. Thanks, and such a pleasure to be um, here with you all at Covent Garden. Uh, please keep your Bibles open if you have them with you. It'll be helpful for you to refer as we go through. Um, there's been some highs and lows in the story of Abraham, haven't they? It's been a bit of a roller coaster. We saw the highs of the covenant, Abraham being called the father of nations, that conduit of blessing to a cursed world. And then we've had some of the lows last week, the destruction of that wicked city, Sodom. And we left last week on a, on a poignant note, didn't we? So God had promised that the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And so when Abraham intervened on behalf of the righteous in Sodom, well, I think we all hoped for the city to be spared, didn't we? But instead, we saw that Sodom, well, it was more wicked than we could have imagined. And only Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his two daughters survived. And yet, I mean, it was amazing that anyone was saved from judgment. 
It's the first time we've seen it in the book. Vital proof that the father of nations really can save, that Abraham's intervention really did something. But we wonder if Abraham knows that. Back in chapter 19, as Abraham looked out, all he saw were the charred remains of a city ravaged by an inferno. So if you flip back to chapter 19 with me, reading from verse 27. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So can you imagine what Abraham was thinking at this moment? You know, hours earlier, he'd stepped up and made his first play as the father of nations, asking God to spare the city. And, you know, perhaps that evening we can picture a restless Abraham in bed, tossing, um, turning, praying, waiting, anxious to learn the fate of that city and his nephew in it, but nervous to see if his exchange with God made any difference at all. And so first thing in the morning, bleary-eyed, he rushes back to that very place we had spoken to the Lord the day before, stomach in a knot, heart in his mouth. And as he looks out, ruin, destruction, death. You know, as far as Abraham can see, um, his saving work has accomplished nothing. And as that city goes up in smoke, well, so perhaps does Abraham's confidence as the father of nations. You know, was Sodom really that bad? Or did God not keep his word? So we as readers know that God delivered Lot and his daughters from the overthrow. But Abraham has no way of seeing the fruit of his saving efforts. No, to him, it all seems useless. And maybe you felt like that before, that you've done your utmost to see someone saved, and it doesn't seem to amount to anything. <laughs> it's one of the, the greatest pains as a Christian, isn't it? And deep down, uh, in the quiet of your despondent heart, well, secretly you wonder if you're more committed to saving unbelievers than God is. A friend of mine recently lost um, his unbelieving brother-in-law to long-term illness. He and his wife spent decades sharing the gospel with him. They proclaimed, they reasoned, they prayed day by day, year on year, and they saw no evidence of repentance, even at the very last. They were with him as he died. And as he breathed his final breath, well, it might have seemed to them a little like that little plume of smoke in Sodom a lifetime of efforts for the gospel that seemed to come to nothing. And you can imagine the temptation to bitterness, to despondency, discouragement, alienation from the God who gave them every reason to share the gospel and yet didn't seem to do his part. So as Abraham looks out on the smoldering city, it's hard to imagine him doing anything but falling to his knees, tears streaming down his face, thinking, Blessing the nations doesn't work. There's just no point. Who can stop God's judgment? I've put a question at the top of our handout if you're following along. Here's the question. How can I be sure that God actually cares about unbelievers when my gospel efforts seem to come to nothing? And maybe you're feeling that pain acutely today. 
you know, you've put your neck on the line for the gospel over and over, um, and it feels like you've got nothing to show for it. Or maybe the tears stopped long ago because you stopped long ago. Well, Genesis 20 is for you. And here's a summary of where we're headed today. That God cares much more about unbelievers than we do and affirms our vital role in his plans to save them. And I hope that we'll come away shaken out of any despondency we might be feeling about the gospel, fresh or long-standing. And so live out the vital role that God gives us as gospel proclaimers today. Or you'll see my little crude summaries on the handout, trust God's commitment to save and keep on with gospel work. So firstly, God cares much more about unbelievers than we do. Uh, Our episode begins with Abraham and Sarah sojourning in a place called Gerar. And what follows might bring a sense of deja vu. So in verse two, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Abraham passes his wife off as his sister. And if you're a long-time listener here at the Covenant Garden Talks, well, you might recall that back in chapter 12, Abraham, then Abram, did the very same thing while sojourning in Egypt. And so Genesis 20 is this clear parallel episode. Abraham again tells that same lie to save his hide as a sojourner in a foreign land. And the foreign ruler again takes Sarah in as his own wife on false pretenses. And I wonder if you're a bit surprised by Abraham in this story, because we've seen him come so far since chapter 12. Abraham since become something like a king in his own right, you know, recall his army of 318 that rescued Lot back in chapter 14. His possessions are super abundant. I mean, there's no worldly reason for Abraham's cowardice. But even more than that, there's no heavenly reason because Abraham isn't Abram anymore. You know, his covenant with God has made him the father of nations. It's like God's made him into a new man. So why is a new man up to his same old sinful ways? It looks like the covenant has made no impact on him. But recall, I mean, that's what Abraham's feeling at this very moment. He's feeling like the covenant has made no impact. And so as he meets this foreign king, his confidence in God has waned and any sense of duty he might have had is now evaporated. He's back to sin and self-preservation. And isn't that just what we're like at our lowest moments as Christians? You know, cynical and jaded. And we say in our hearts, being God's people makes no difference at all. And so our attention's diverted away from blessing others and towards protecting ourselves. Our cynicism with God leaves us lapsing into sin and self-preservation. But Abraham's sin doesn't just affect him and Sarah. If you read with me in verse three, uh, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abimelech's taken Sarah as his own wife under false pretenses. Uh, In an awkward situation, I had an illustration here trying to use um, Joel and his wife Matilda, and I, I cut it because it was just such a weird situation. 
it's easy to trivialize what Abraham and Sarah have done here, right? But it's just horrendous. I mean, put yourself in Abimelech's shoes if you dare. And I'm not sure which emotion wins out. You know, is it rage, humiliation, fear, disgust? I mean, this is an outrageous thing that Abraham and Sarah have done. And so we can consider the blood drained from Abimelech's face at this moment. He is the victim of a horrible ruse. And for Abraham and Sarah to pull this trick, not once, but twice, they are cursing and not blessing the nations. And in verse four, Abimelech appeals to God. Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Abraham and Sarah are the sinners in this story. And Abimelech is the righteous one. There's a big role reversal. And God thinks so too. In verse six, God says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God sovereignly intervenes to ensure Abimelech's innocence. And he's also protected the child of promise. And it's important that we see this because we're expecting Isaac's birth any time now. I mean, Sarah could be pregnant with Isaac right now. And if she isn't pregnant, well, there can be no suspicion for the reader that the child of promise was born to Abimelech, that actually Abraham was the issue. I think the takeaway is Abraham's doubts about God have led him to jeopardize Sarah and the prospect of the birth of Isaac and left him cursing the nations. But God graciously preserves Sarah. God faithfully preserves the hope of a child born to Abram. And even when Abraham falters, it is God who is faithful to enforce Abraham's role to see the nations blessed. Read with me in verse seven. Uh, God says, now then return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. It's like God is saying, hey, Abimelech, um, you know that guy who's just tricked you into this appalling, shameful situation? Yeah, he's, he's my prophet. <laughs> I mean, it's astounding, isn't it? I mean, what Abraham has done here is so terrible that even the unbeliever is outraged at how evil it is. But God says, he is my prophet. I mean, interestingly, this is the first time in the entire Bible that we hear that word prophet used. You might have imagined it would be reserved for someone a little more godly later on, someone more squeaky clean and consistent, less of a checkered past or something. But no, it's Abraham. And I, I find that quite reassuring, actually. I hope you do too. Abraham's been given this eternal role. And rather than God taking it away at this moment of abject failure, he affirms that Abraham is his guy. And it's a moment that defines the role of the prophet. Still a sinner, yet a blesser. And when the Bible calls Christians like you and me prophets, it's that same dynamic. Still a sinner, yet a blesser. In verse 9, Abimelech confronts Abraham and says, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. I wonder if you've ever had 
a moment like that, a time when you've done something so shameful, you think, man, this is so bad. Even an unbeliever is ashamed of me. You know, I had my chance at living different, differently for God and I blew it. Well, that's Abraham in Genesis 20. And yet he is God's prophet. And that's the covenant faithfulness of our God, isn't it? You know, we'd expect him to cut Abraham loose by now, but he doesn't revoke the role that he gives his people. And I've been just deeply thankful for this truth. If you're a Christian today, and maybe you've been a Christian for decades, even at your very lowest point in the greatest depths of your sin, did you know that you never lost your license to bless? You know, we're so quick to count ourselves out as gospel proclaimers, aren't we, for one reason or another. But the moment you heard and accepted the Lord Jesus, you became a prophet of the Lord, still a sinner, yet a blesser. It was your privilege to proclaim Jesus even at your worst. And even at that, those times in our faith when we've most fought against him, God never revoked our right to fight alongside him. Now we started by asking that question on the handout, how can I be sure that God actually cares about unbelievers when my gospel efforts seem to come to nothing? Well, here's a story where Abraham's basically logged off from blessing the nations. And in fact, he's cursing the nations through his self-preserving behavior. But it's God who warns Abimelech. It's God who prevents him from touching Sarah, preserving Abimelech's innocence. It's God who protects the birth of Isaac, the child of promise. And it's God who directs Abimelech to his prophet so that he might be rescued from the mess his own people have made. If the nations are blessed here, it's because God has made it happen. And I think this, this story is exactly the test case that we need as readers who are doubting God's commitment to blessing the nations and saving unbelievers. So even when his people falter, this is God's project that he's seeing through. In fact, even when God's prophets have zipped their lips in protest, God ensures that the nations are blessed. And that's the answer today, isn't it? How can we be sure that God actually cares about unbelievers? Blessing the nations wasn't Abraham's initiative. It's not like he sought God out back in Genesis 12 with his own solution to a fallen world, like an entrepreneur with an investment opportunity on Dragon's Den, you know, and God reluctantly accepted because the finances were sound or something. You know, God pulled Abraham out of obscurity and God set the agenda with Abraham that he would bless the nations. And God is ensuring it will happen, even when his prophets are, are scared or bitter or self-absorbed. And he'll even do it at great personal cost. You know, the Lord Jesus ensures that disciples are being made in the nations by the cross. And God is ensuring that unbelievers are saved as the whole world is directed to his capital P prophet in Jesus. God is far more invested in the nations being blessed than we are. And yet he does it through faltering humans like you and me, which brings us to our next point uh, more briefly. God cares much more about unbelievers than we do and affirms our vital role in his plans to save them. If you tuned out, this is a good time to tune back in. He affirms our vital role in his plans to save them. Abimelech's been warned by God, but God directs him to his prophet for salvation. And so in verse 14, um, something of this reverse wedding takes place as 
Abimelech returns Abraham's wife and lavishes blessings on the tricksters. Through with me in verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. It's a picture of uh, restoration. But we really feel for Abimelech here. I'm not sure if you've ever been forced to say sorry to someone who's wronged you. Uh, but it feels a terrible injustice, doesn't it? I feel quite used to it growing up with two sisters who are far more lovable than me. I often got blamed for the fights that they started. And there they'd be smiling as my, my parents forced me to apologize cringingly. So maybe I have a special sympathy for Abimelech. And here at first glance, it might look like God is rewarding Abraham and Sarah for their evil. But actually, this key interaction is teaching us a valuable lesson. That even when the father of nations has abandoned his post for the day, all the month, all the year, he's given up. Even when he's doing his utmost to escape the obligations of his role, well, he is still God's means for blessing. And God will use him. Those who bless him will be blessed. And so with Abimelech having blessed Abraham in verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. The Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abimelech and his household are saved. He's gone from, you're a dead man, to saved. And that restoration of childbearing was a picture of life, isn't it? The life that God offers. So just as God has promised to open Sarah's womb, with all its salvation and resurrection overtones, so God saves Abimelech through his prophet. So that's the story. Should we just draw things together now? I mean, it's amazing how this story bends itself around a reluctant, faltering Abraham. You know, it seems he just wants to disappear from the story, fade into the background in his despondency. But the gravity of blessings revolves around Abraham. That same Abraham who started in chapter 20 haunted by the image of Sodom burning in his mind, thinking, it's useless. I'm useless. And maybe you're feeling some a measure of that today from the apparent failures of your own ministries, your own gospel efforts, or maybe from hanging your gloves as a gospel proclaimer long ago. But if we've learned what Abraham has learned, well, we can say our God is the God who saves. And our role is far from useless. Actually, it's vital for the salvation of the world. Did you know that your role is vital in God's plan to save the world? So just as God told Abraham, go from your country back in Genesis 12, that Jesus says to his disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations. The gravity of blessings revolves around you if you're a Christian today. In the Lord Jesus. And it wasn't that Abraham became vital after today's passage. 
nor that he finally earned his title as the blessing, blesser of the nations. Um, he was always important and his role was always his for as long as the covenant stood. Abraham just started acting in line with it. And perhaps this is the eureka moment that you and I all need. Um, it's so tempting to feel discouraged and inert as gospel partners in lockdown. But God has made us, that past tense made us people with a role of cosmic significance through the gospel. The disciples of Jesus are blessers of a world filled with curse, prophets holding out life to a dying world. And that's true whether we step up to the plate or not. But it's vital that we do. You might be at a point in your Christian life where uh, you hear of others sharing the gospel and part of you kind of wants to roll your eyes because deep down you expect only the smoke of judgment. You may have concluded long ago that evangelism is a fool's errand just for the hyper keen or people with too little to do in their week. But any Christian is living proof that's false because God's guarantee to Abraham has spilled over in the gospel age. And so if you're a Christian on the call today, you're not just a picture of God's commitment to save. You've actually taken up the mantle in this project to bless the nations, a project backed by Jesus's own blood. Abraham thought there was only the smoke of judgment that day in Sodom. Can you imagine his surprise when he sees his nephew Lot in glory on the final day. That stinging rebuke that actually God was faithful, though he didn't know it. And might that be your experience on the final day? That even a gospel conversation that seems an absolute train smash, we've all been there. That even prayers for a colleague who seems too far gone for the gospel, that even dialogue events on Zoom, that seem absolutely hopeless, even as you plan them, might be used by a God who wants life for the dead even more than you do. Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this affirmation of your desire for the lost to be saved. Thank you that it's here so early in Genesis that this insecurity that we might have that actually where the only ones um, interested in this work gets dealt with. And we see really there's your work to do. And you even do it as we falter. And yet we have this vital role, Father. I pray that we would be convinced of this and be content to step up and fill that role. We know it's a costly thing to do. We know that we don't always see the fruit. Um, and yet we know that you are faithful. We stand as the evidence that you are faithful to save as the gospel goes out, Father. And so I pray that we will press on. We pray that we would see many on the final day standing in glory with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.